Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never, ever charge you for this podcast. And I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible. All I ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Now let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. My guest today is Jay Moss, who you've heard on this podcast before. He's a musician, producer, mixer, mastering engineer, songwriter, and computer scientist. He opened his studio in the early 2000s, as well as started the well-known melodic hardcore outfit Defeater. He's worked with a bunch of bands like State Champs, Bane, Counterparts, Title Fight, but he also is creating some sick software that we're going to talk about. And I love this dude's entrepreneurial spirit. He's always inspiring to talk to. I relate to this man. I'm going to shut up. I introduce you, Jay Moss. Jay Moss, welcome back. Thanks so much. It's as if we haven't been talking for the past 10 minutes. This feels much like as if 10 minutes did not just pass. (laughs) Isn't it weird when you start an interview or a podcast and you've been shooting the shit with somebody and then you start the podcast and it's like you have to pretend like you haven't been talking? Yeah, it goes against my entire brand. It feels exceptionally disingenuous. <laughs> I still haven't figured out how to bridge that gap. What, like almost 300 episodes deep? It still makes me feel a little bit weird to do that. I don't know how to get over it other than maybe just start recording the moment we start talking, but then the audience is going to hear all the technical talk. Right, which I don't think they care about. <laughs> no, you, they want to hear a count off every single time. Yeah, exactly. Wow, nice clap, guys. <laughs> They'll make fun of us because the claps are always out of time. Right, and we're audio engineers. <laughs> yeah, man, it gets really bad with the musicians too, and they get insecure about it. It's kind of funny, actually. I love that. Yeah, it's not their fault. It's just Skype delay, but you know they're used to knowing how to count, so <laughs> they value themselves on that. Uh, yeah, not, not all of them. Some of them are not used to True. They think they know how to count. That makes me think of like back in the day when I was first starting to record. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. I would try to get drummers to record to a click. Like back in the early 2000s, it's also when I was trying to find a drummer for my band and I wanted my band to play to a click. And it was like they were treating it like it was, you know, COVID 19 or something. Sure. Like they were afraid of the fucking click and there was tons of resistance, like serious resistance. Now, I feel like finding a drummer who can't play to a click, that's the anomaly. I agree. Yeah, there's been a shift. I started recording in literally January 2004, 
and click was almost like a like a bad word to a lot of bands, a lot of drummers, right? It was like basically saying like, hey, <laughs> you can't do your job. And they didn't perceive it like, no, your job is to be in time. And then also like the click is your friend. Now it's like totally the other way. Like if a drummer comes in and is scared of the click, it's a very rare. And it's almost like they're ashamed to even tell me like, hey man, like I haven't recorded the click very much. That's probably something you're going to want to do. So you're going to really have to help me here, which of course, no problem. But the shift is totally like from 04 to 2020. It's like a total, total shift. It's a 180. Yeah, it's definitely. It's absolute 180. Yeah, it was like a mark of shame if you played to a click, which is interesting. I think that a lot of people used to think that if you played to a click, it took away your feel. But the best drummers always said that it helps your feel because you can figure out exactly where to push or pull it. I mean, we already know all this stuff, but it's just kind of interesting, especially in technical styles of music. Like, you know, I come from the metal world. That's always been technical music. Of all genres where you would expect it to have been the norm, that's where it had the most resistance. It was the jazz drummers who actually play in like, let's just say, elastic time who all played do a click. Yeah, I mean, okay, so last shit for this, but I think a good drummer can really embrace and often does really embrace having the click because it's fun when you've got your your metronome going and like you said, a good drummer will push and pull off the click in creative ways and know, okay, it's just a little helpful thing where it's like, yeah, I am going to speed up you know, the first eighth note triplets of this fill so that I can drag out the back half of the fill to create that like sort of speaking the word elastic, like elastic moment of tension that leads to a stronger downbeat. Like that's what a good drummer knows how to do and they execute it well. And of course, it's nice to know like, boom, nailed it, like right on the one because everybody else is going to be counting on that downbeat. You get that play, you get that interaction, you know, in the end of your fourth measure, and then that creates tension of its own. I was about to say that. Yeah, when that tension all lands on the downbeat, it just feels like, oh, damn, I thought you were going off the rails, but you pulled it off. Yeah, Yeah. someone told me that it's called like hanging, like hanging the note. Exactly. Or like coming in on a downbeat, like slightly behind the beat after a pause, stuff like that. That's feel, that elusive thing that everybody talks about feel, in my opinion, that is contained in that. And I think that great writing is based on tension and release. Yeah, and dynamics. Yeah, and dynamics, yeah. And bending time, the way that great drummers do, like you said, speeding up the beginning of the fill and then like hanging on the end, that's all part of tension release. Tension release isn't just a harmonic tension kind of thing. It's also in the rhythm. Yeah, I agree. And I think to some degree, newer like engineers or people coming into the field who maybe came up with programming drums first and then not having as much experience putting live drums in, I get this a little bit where people think of drums as like dots on a grid and like not coming from that world. Like that's still a weird, in, in my opinion, like not ideal way to think of those things because like, yes, it's a drum, but no, it does not only contain like six levels of multi samples. Like it's an infinitely variable instrument, just like every other piece of your kit is an infinitely variable instrument. So it's not like, what does that symbol sound like when it's hit? It's like, well, are you using the tip? Are you using the bow? Like, what's your angle like? Like, did you already hit it? Yeah, <laughs> right, right, exactly. Is it in motion or is it still? Any good musician knows how to finesse their instrument if they're masterful in their craft in a way that really brings out the best and brings out lots of different sounds and dynamics and can play with the push and pull of the click creatively. And that's what makes something that maybe comes from my world a little bit, in my opinion, like kind of like cooler and more like raw and punk because all of those 
non-linearities, to use a very audio term, is what makes it exciting for me. It doesn't feel so staccato. Absolutely. So, by the way, I think that drum software has come a long way. Me too. So this is not me talking shit at all, because I think that where it is now compared to where it was even five years ago or 10 years ago. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Like you can do great stuff with it, obviously, and there's tons of great options. And so this is not a negative statement, but I think that symbols are still hard. And I think it's because of that infinitely variable situation. Symbols are even more variable than a drum itself. And I think that our computers are just not up to the task of calculating all the variations needed. Like how long would it take to actually sample symbols properly in order to get enough variations in there to be able to give the computer or the software something that it could then spit out sounding realistic? Like it kind of can with shells. Like you can get ghost notes sounding really great if you if you understand what you're doing. Symbols, it's starting to get to the point where sometimes you can't tell, but still I think the computers aren't there yet. Like the processing power is not there yet. It will be though. Also, we just need more time. Like you need to spend like a month sampling one ride. I know. I mean, as someone who has made drum sample libraries. Yeah, and yours is good. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I mean, doing the hi-hats, that's like a whole day. The amount of time, the different sticking articulations, the amount of resonance. And you're right, something like a ride cymbal, if you bring in like a big 24-inch sweet ride, right? The thing resonates forever. And, you know... Are you going to catch all of it? Like, you have to think about things given, with, you're right, with where computers are. It's like, well, now you've got data sizes and how much RAM does the usual computer have and how many other virtual instruments are they going to be using? So, if like you let your rides, you know, resonate in perpetuity at the highest sample rates, it's like, well, shit, there's a bunch of memory right there. And when do you get to a point of diminishing returns on starting to taper the back end of that ride off? When it's like, basically silent or is it like when it's totally silent? Actually silent. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of time that passes between when a ride symbol is hit and when it actually reaches down to the noise floor of the room. Man, I know that even when I would do sample sessions for an album just to be able to replace bad hits, if we were going to do symbols too, that would take something that could be done in like an hour and turn it into six hours. Oh, easily. A lot of like the mid-2000 metal producers, I won't name names, whatever, but I just like, I'm aware of people, you know, where they just trigger all their shells, but they have all real ride cymbals. They'll do them in like two goes, basically. So there's no shell bleed in the quote-unquote like cymbal mics. And then they'll have like, you know, for especially like more aggressive genres, like probably more your world, like metal type stuff, it wasn't uncommon to have just like a lot of drum samples and some real cymbals because especially at the time, like cymbals just weren't convincing. That was a common thing. Also, that was something it's kind of funny. That's something that uh, my then assistant, a dude named John Douglas, shout out to him. He's incredible. This is how we would overcome getting programmed drums to mix. We would set up a drum set and mic up the cymbals and he would play the cymbals over the programming. And it was a lot quicker than having to set up the whole thing and then try to be drummers. Like he was good enough. And even I did it sometimes. Like we're good enough to play cymbals well. And when you did that on top of the program drums, like it yielded an acceptable result. Now that's for like kind of salvage operation situations, but I've definitely been in like real scenarios where it's kind of about choosing your priorities because uh, when you have so much audio information going so fast. It's like an onslaught of just transients nonstop. 
Like I remember I counted 1,800 kick drum hits on a Black Dahlia song. I edited drums on once. That's just one song that was like three minutes long. So you got to think about how much shit is flying at you. You need the precision that those types of techniques allow you. And now actually Black Dahlia's drummers, both Shannon and the newer guy would never allow that to be done. So it's kind of a bad example. They've always been about actually playing everything. But sometimes, man, it's just a production decision, not based on anybody, not being good enough. It's just you need that precision or else stuff's going to get in the way. People have a lot of opinions and they like to draw lines about like what is okay, what is acceptable. It really all comes down to preference because I don't know, like it used to only be acceptable to record to tape and then like digital recording came out and everyone shit all over it. Now no one records on tape and you're just like, I accept that. And it's the same thing. It's like where does production end and performance, you know, end and how do those things like interplay? I usually say it comes down to like, of course I have my own preferences, but I don't necessarily need to impose those preferences on everybody I work with. My job is more to be like a vessel for their art and take what's in their heads and the references they give me. And it'll have my own spin naturally because it's going to be filtered through me, but take all of that stuff and create something that they're proud of and is translatable and sounds appropriate to the world that they're in. You know, And sometimes that sounds like in utero, you know what I mean? And sometimes that sounds like August Burns Red. Just to echo your point about recording mediums changing and people accepting that, I just had Bob Clearmountain on the podcast like last week and I asked him, you know, because he's known for his analog approach and I asked him, is there one thing about the analog world that you wouldn't bring with you into the future? His answer was recording to tape. Of course. He went on and on about it, which I thought it was interesting because there was a time period where everybody, including people who didn't know what the fuck they were talking about, <laughs> all the yeah. way to people who did, would say tape is better, tape is better, digital sucks, digital sucks, tape is better, digital sucks. Right. Now you've got like the king himself being like, tape sucked, digital's better. Well, yeah. People thought tape was magic. It's insane. Like They thought like... Oh, bro, to tape sounds awesome. I'm like, you have no fucking idea. And like, you could just tell somebody if something sounded like, I don't know, like it sounded like a relatively natural recording. It could have been recorded in Pro Tools 1.0, you know, but it was just like not overly EQ'd. It was just sort of microphones going in and being spit back out, you know, on some sort of stereo bus. They would be like, oh, sounds great. Like, yeah, I did this to tape. And they'd be like, I can tell. <laughs> you know, they, they don't know. <laughs> I remember back in like, the late 90s, when I was first starting to borrow gear from this producer guy, this was a producer who did like pre-pro for really big bands. That was his like spot in Atlanta. So for people who are under the age of 30 or 35, back in the days of the big studio, when that was the norm, there were always like this second string level of studios where bands did pre-pro. And they were legit studios that, you know, made a living and kept the lights on and did great. It's just these major label bands would go to these pre-production studios with the pre-production producer, mixer guy. They'd spend like two weeks there and then they would move on to like Brendan O'Brien or, you know, some heavyweight. So this guy that my band used to record with was the pre-production guy. And so he was telling me about doing pre-production with Molly Crew once and Tommy Lee had just bought a computer or something or Nikki Six, and they were all excited about 
writing in a computer and he bitched them out and was like, stop fucking with all those toys. That's not how uh, real musicians work, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, he lost the project. I think it's hilarious. In fact, they were completely ahead of their time doing that in the late 90s, buying their own computers and writing in their bedrooms and stuff. Totally, man. Obviously, the, our community here of audio engineers is a pretty opinionated sort. and uh, <laughs> Overly. <laughs> yeah, to say the least. But, you know, it is funny how people just tend to romanticize everything from sort of their glory years. So I very much try not to do that. Like my favorite band, I say it in every fucking thing I do, is Fugazi. You know, they're not an active band. They were just like DC, jangly, weird, out of tune punk from, you know, like late 80s, early 90s mostly. But that doesn't mean like my assistants bring me stuff like really modern punk and stuff. It sounds totally different, but I know that that's their Fugazi. You know, and like, and that's okay. And if someone came in and was like, hey, like, we're going after this, you don't say, like, nah, get out. Doesn't sound like Fugazi. You got to go. Like, you know, it's like, you're crazy. No, it's like the tools change, but we've proven now that you can make art, great fucking art, with almost any kind of tools. Like, I've made demos that people liked on a four track when I was 15 years old, right? And it was about the performances that went in and stuff. And, there's still a culture of people that would probably like the way that those recordings sounded. They're out there. They probably have like crusty dogs with bandanas around their neck attending festivals, but they're <laughs> out there and they like that. And I think it's important to make like the tools and the techniques, like master the stuff you like, of course, but like there's definitely not one way because there's people like bands that sound a million different ways, you know, like there's this new like thing coming back where things kind of sound like lo-fi hi-fi, like in like the indie and sort of punk world where it's like, it sort of sounds intentionally gritty and like intentionally like air quotes bad, but it has a more 2020. It's got like a sheen to it and low end. Yeah, it has low end is a big part of it because those old ones just didn't. And like, that's cool again. And things become like real reciprocal in that way. And I like that, like being like a veteran engineer now, like I've seen a couple waves and I've started to see things like return. First of all, it just makes me feel old, but also like seeing <laughs> things like come back and I'm like, yeah, I know how to do that. I haven't done it in a minute, but sick, let's go, you know? You know, the thing I'm happy that's coming back is I would say real recordings in a way, but not real in the way that it used to be. I actually made a post on, about that on Instagram today. It's a good one. It's the Drake meme, if anyone wants to look. But real in that, you know, in the mid 2000s, well, late 2000s, like around 2010 in heavy music, the sound was a completely fake sound. Like it didn't sound like bands. It sounded like, it was like electronic music almost. Huge. Sounded great on car stereos, like if you were testing your subs, but you couldn't close your eyes and imagine a band. In some ways, I think that the bar was starting to go down. And I think that now people have learned the lessons from that time period, good and bad. So the low end is still there. The volume, in a good way, is still there. Maybe it's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still loud, but good loud. The clarity is still there. However, people have brought vibe back in. So you're getting all the stuff from that era that was good, but much less of the BS part of it of like completely fake sounding drums, unrealistic sounding bands, like all that. I feel like that stuff, at least in my world, doesn't seem to be what's moving the needle anymore. What's moving the needle now are bands that they do sound modern, 
but they sound like actual bands and like actual music. Dude, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's awesome. It brings joy to my heart. That's my preference, of course. And I remember those 2010 era, like oh, everything you're talking about, I remember. And I had a hard time emotionally attaching myself to a lot of that stuff because I just, like you said, like I closed my eyes. I didn't hear performances. I heard nice sounds, you know, but I didn't hear the player through it all. And it just didn't. It clearly spoke to, because I've, I've been to those shows and I saw the crowds at the time, and it clearly spoke to a generation or at least a piece of one, but it wasn't my preference. And I've even had to make records kind of like that, you know? But I agree, and I'm seeing it. We turn records out here almost every day. So we're on the front lines of seeing that shift, and it's really nice. Like, if I was to deliver anything resembling one of those, like, mixes now, I would have a healthy amount of aggressive mix notes sent back to me because. That's just not what people want. Yeah. Even though I haven't been mixing for about five years, I've been on the front lines of seeing what people want. And I can tell you that the kinds of mixes that URM students submit now versus five years ago, also the kinds of things they want to see us present are way more in that direction than the fakey fake direction. Obviously, there's still... Like I said, some of that is not going away. Like you probably should know how to work with program drums. Like even if it's not your preference, they're not going anywhere. Program drums are here to stay. Things like that are here to stay. MIDI bass, I'm not saying that bass players are obsolete, but MIDI bass is not going anywhere. There's going to be, if you're mixing projects, there's going to be a handful of projects that come in with MIDI bass, whether it's your preference or not. That's just reality now. I agree. Yeah, it's funny how I think we see that in everything without getting uh, too social, but like even in politics or social issues, the pendulum swings, man. And when it gets enough momentum, like it usually swings all the way. Yes. You know what I mean? And then all the way back. Yeah. yeah. But um, you're right. Like there's usually lessons good and bad to be learned from the, the swingeth of the pendulum. We take with us all the good parts. You know what I mean? We'll swing the other way and there'll be new bad parts over there. And hopefully we'll leave those there and we'll take some of the good ones and we'll just kind of keep popping back and forth. So what's going to be the bad swing now? Is it going to get too raw and shitty? Uh, and people are going to be like, I need polish again. <laughs> I think we're just going to have like a plethora of people not knowing how to balance and control upper mid-range. You know, just like... Well, we've already got that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I guess in a different way. But like, you know, when we, we were doing the 2010 thing, it was like all the sounds themselves were good, so they like combined really easily. When you're working with like more chaotic, more distorted, maybe more real, more harmonically like infused sounds, like, well, those are cool, but they're harder to balance. So you got to put on your like pro mixing hat, you know, and, and, and know what you're doing. I don't know, more is the word, but differently for sure. More intricately. I would say, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, so speaking of work, obviously... We're in some crazy times right now. Just for anybody listening long into the future, it's May 14th, 2020. So we're kind of, I would say, in the first third of the COVID-19 crisis. Probably. Still going to get weirder from here, I think. That's my prediction. Hopefully I'm wrong. I think it's just starting. So obviously people are having to rely on a 100% remote work model. How has that affected your business and what are some ways that you found to uh, successfully adapt to the quote unquote new normal, even though I don't think we have hit the new normal yet? Yeah, I agree with you. Well, fortunate in the sense that I've been doing remote mixing work for over 10 years now. And that side of the studio has really like built itself up a lot. And that's not surprising because thanks to people like yourself who educate people, they can now 
make better recordings and they don't have to necessarily go to a studio to do that. But they a lot of times still might want help with mixing or mastering or whatever it is. So we get a ton of that. And so for me, I always say like what I've learned about the COVID-19 situation is that I might have actually just been a hermit and not known it because- <laughs> I knew it. You know, yeah. <laughs> My day-to-day hasn't been as drastically different and I'm lucky I've been working in this industry a long time. We've got a nice studio. We've got, you know, enough land here so that I can go outside and stuff. Where it gets weird for me, a slightly off topic, is like when I go to like Target and I'm like, oh, right. Like things are weird. <laughs> and then I'm like, I just want to go home again <laughs> and just wait this out. Yeah. So it's been interesting. It's given me, because we aren't doing tracking sessions right now, not until we know that we can. Again, fortunate that we're not in a position where that's going to tank our business whatsoever. But it's a bummer, and that will change in time. But for now, it's giving me extra time to work on more mixing and mastering. And then obviously, this is a good segue. I had been programming with a developer I hired. We've been programming an AI that does mastering that we've been working really hard on. So I've had now pretty much, we just we were already building, and then we're stuck at home. And so now it's like you know 14-hour coding days, testing. Um, and because I don't have to be down tracking you know, for eight hours or whatever, somebody playing guitar, that gives me eight more hours to write code. You know what? I, yeah, I want to get to that in one second. You just said something real quick that I want to key in on because I haven't thought about this before. Uh, you said that now that people are able to track themselves better, it kind of changes the game for mixers. I, I kind of didn't think about that before, but you're right. If you know how to mix and you have some momentum with it already, could make you that much more valuable in a time period like this because mixing is like the hardest thing, I think. That's the top of the mountain as far as I'm concerned in terms of skills. And so even if you get good at tracking yourself, which I guess a lot of people are starting to, most people still need help with mixes. And the fact that they can record themselves well, that actually means that there's going to be more of a a surplus of music that needs to be mixed. Absolutely. Because you know what? All the mixers I've been talking to are actually doing a lot of work right now. Oh, yeah, we're slammed here. It's not just you, man. It's like all my podcast guests and Nailed the Mix guests are fucking slammed right now. Yeah, it's great. I don't even know how many projects I have. I'd have to check my board, but I mean, we're sending revisions and things out every day to a whole bunch of bands. All the records are really good, too. And I tracked one or two of them, but most of them came in like from outside of tracking here. So that's actually really cool. And uh, the other thing you said that I want to key in on is that you had built it up to this point. So one thing that I've thought about a lot, because like, for instance, URM is doing real well. Riff Hard is doing real well during this time period. And the thing about it is we thought a black swan was going to hit. Two years ago, we had meetings about this and we're like, it's been too good for too long. A black swan is coming you're familiar with that term? I think I infer what it means. That something's going to fuck you up, but you don't know what. It's going to be the thing you didn't think of. I mean, yeah, the black swan's here, basically. It fucked the whole world up. But we started gearing ourselves up for it a long time ago and just making the business, I guess, operate in a way that it could thrive in a time like this. And it paid off. And what I'm getting at is I see a lot of people right now suddenly scrambling to do something new to try to make that work. And I guess if you have nothing going on, you have to. But at the same time, the lesson learned, in my opinion, should be that you should be planning for this kind of stuff way out so that when it does finally happen, 
you're ready for it. Kind of like you just said about your remote business was already built up. So now it's just continuing as opposed to if you had done none of that and then suddenly had to start scrambling to pick up remote clients, I think you'd be in a very different headspace. No question. No question. I've always been very like bleeding edge when it comes to technology. And it comes from, again, you know, I'm a computer science major. So like I've always been interested in like the nerdier tech parts of recording. And when I first realized, I was like, wait, I don't have to track everything. I can, you know, that was 10 years ago. And I think I'm lucky to have done that. But I think good advice for anyone is that people still own horses and people still ride horses but most people drive their car. So like you can love like your old thing, you could love tape, you can love the old ways, you could love big consoles, you could love all of that. And they aren't ever probably, you know, air quotes ever going to like totally go away, but like the evolution train of like technology and it's a tsunami. Yeah, and in like it's every industry. Recording's just one of them, right? It's like are you waiting for cable TV to make its big comeback? Like it's not coming. You know, like my grandma's still going to have cable TV, but none of my friends have or probably will ever again have cable TV. And it's the same thing. You have to be looking forward. You have to be looking at where things are going, not where things were. Yeah, man, that's very, very true. So I think back to about 2010, speaking of being able to see where the future's kind of headed, a couple things. I remember back in that day when bands started recording themselves, a lot of the producers I knew were not pleased, not pleased at all. Some of those same people that were not pleased are still not pleased and they post, you might know some of them, they talk shit about everybody online. It's because they didn't seize opportunities back in the day and now are feeling the pain. But it was super obvious that Bands are going to start recording themselves. This is just the beginning. If they're doing it, and if one in year one, you have three bands that wanted to record their own guitars, and then in year two, you have 10 bands, where do you think this is headed? If now suddenly bands don't come in for full albums, they just want to record drums in my room and then mix with you, where do you think this is going? It's not going to stop, and no matter how much you bitch about it, this is the direction things are going. And I think that people who understood that and adapted to it are doing fine now. It's kind of like the same thing with the online education thing. Like there was some point in like 2012, 13, where it was just obvious to me that this is the future of education. And I know a lot of people did not agree with me and were very, very uh, negative about it, but they're wrong. They are. This is the future of education. This is just the beginning. And there's nothing anyone can do about it. It's the same thing as cars versus horses, typewriters versus keyboards. There's a direction that evolution goes in and it is like a tsunami. There's nothing you can do about it. So fucking get on higher ground and make it work, basically. Yeah, no, you have to. Could not agree more. And a good way to know if you are pointed in that right direction is like, if you're pissing people off when you tell them the thing <laughs> that you're doing, if someone feels, and it's, dude, it sucks, you know, it's like not, it's kind of such like a sociopathic way to say this, but like if they're pissed, it's probably because they feel threatened or they feel insecure Correct. about what you're doing. Cause otherwise they wouldn't really elicit that emotion. And so like they would just be like, oh, cool, good, good luck. But, but if they're mad, at, you're like, hey, I'm gonna go do a thing I want to do. I'm gonna do all the work and I'm gonna put it out there because I want to. And it's no competition to you. You don't have to do anything. 
And like when people get upset with you putting your own energy into something you think is cool and you believe in and want to do, and you're like, how are you mad at me for that? Like, like if people get mad at you for that, well, there's a chance you're on the right track, especially if the people in your industry, right? Like those people are mad at you because they're like, fuck, I'm not doing that. Like, and I don't know if I'm gonna, and that sucks. And now, and, and the other thing that I think is really funny is like, you were ahead of the curve very much so with online education in this field, which is so awesome. But like, you know, people would probably shit talk you, right? They're oh, like, well, yeah. now he does it. Now I can't do it. And it's like, well, buddy, you were never going to do it anyway. But you can. Here's the thing. If you want to, you can. Best of luck. Dude, it's a huge, wide world of internet out there, and anybody can do it. But yes, that reminds me, yeah, the people that shit talk who say that, now I can't do it, it reminds me of the same kind of people who were like, always wanted to do a project before COVID-19, but didn't have time. But now they have all the time and they're still not doing that project. It's like you weren't going to anyways. They weren't. Yep. It's funny. I was talking to somebody about this last night. I know that sometimes when people talk about haters, they have like funny things to say about them. But in all reality, I look at it and the more vicious it is, that's one of the only gauges I have that I'm on a right, on the right path. Because if you're not making an impact, nobody's going to care that much. If you're making an impact, it's impossible that everyone's going to love it. They're like, no way. There's going to be people who hate it. And the more viciously they hate you, that means that the more of an impact you're making. So while it sucks, like, you know, we're all human, it kind of does suck. You got to reframe it into realizing that it's a it's a great gauge for measuring the impact you're making. Yeah, it really is. It's a strange, counterintuitive, exceptionally accurate gauge for how well, like if you're pointed in the right direction or not. Well, you see this shit they say and you want to drone strike their house, but in reality, they're doing you a favor by letting you know that you're making a difference, basically. Yeah. I don't understand because I don't do it and I don't like it. I don't understand the psychology of just like having to speak poorly of things that I don't personally like. That's so weird to me. Like, It is very weird, isn't it? I'll be dead honest with you, man. I hate overcooked asparagus. Like I hate it. <laughs> like I think it's disgusting, right? I am not on the vegetable forums of the internet going on about everyone who's overcooking their asparagus. You guys are ruining what could be a great thing. It just needs a little salt. <laughs> Just a little steam, you know what I mean? It's like, and here you guys are cooking it to shreds. It's like, I can't imagine ever doing that. <laughs> yeah, it's beyond me too. I don't understand being in that mindset. <laughs> me either. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of crazy. Listen, I've been cooking asparagus yeah. for seven years. <laughs> Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that is such a funny way to put it. <laughs> the thing is, too, that's kind of what it comes off like to everybody. Yeah, of course. Very, very few people look at people who spread mega negativity online seriously. You know, there's some YouTube channels, for instance, that their whole shtick is talking shit. Only a very, very tiny amount of, I would say, unfortunately minded people take it seriously. Everybody else just watches because it's kind of funny to watch someone shit talk or something, or to actually shit talk the shit talker. But nobody actually takes those people seriously. And very few people want to get involved with them. Not doing yourself any favors. It's not fun. It doesn't do anything good. It doesn't go anywhere except you just like are in your own dumb little echo chamber of like being mad about something <laughs> that you didn't even do. It's so weird. Yeah. 
It's funny. But, so, all right, so let's talk about the computer stuff. Sure. You're working on a pretty impressive bit of AI technology called Monster, right? Yeah, I had to name it that. You know I yeah. had to. <laughs> so it can master a track or an album. Let's just be real, man. A lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth with Lander. So why is this different? Let me just say Lander was a piece of, maybe still is, is a website that you could upload your tracks to and it would spit out a master and it was notoriously terrible. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like it became a joke. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> Rolling off of our last topic, I don't want to go on a shit spree here, but I will say that I'm also aware of, let's say, the opportunities left in sonic quality for something that operates on a similar premise, but I think does it with a more graceful and, in my opinion, much preferential sonic output. You know, it's not about shit-talking Lander or something, but we got to be honest and real. If we're going to talk about what you're doing, we have to address that because people are going to immediately of course. think, oh, it's just another Lander, and I want to make sure that people don't think that so we just got to kind of address it. It's really not. It's totally proprietary. My partner in it is an amazing software engineer. And so I like to say that I'm like a music major with a computer science minor. And he's like a computer science major with like a music minor. And it's a great combination. And so we've been working like crazy on this thing. And it sounds really good. So I know that it sounds good, and here's why I know. I mean, I know it sounds good because I know it sounds good. But then, you know, you've got to get outside opinions. you got to get beat up. you got to get the feedback. And so for, I maybe shouldn't announce this, but for a couple months, I've been using it for some of my mastering work. And I tell them after. You know what I mean? So I say, like, I wait for the feedback because I don't want any bias coming back. I just want people to hear it. And dude, I could show you the emails and, and the messages I get about, dude, you crushed this. Read me some of them. I'd have to pull them up. First of all, I don't think that it's a bad thing for you to announce that because you created it, right? So it's kind of like when Joey says that he uses one of his plugins. Like, right, yeah, totally. He uses gain reduction on vocals. It's like, well, he designed it to simplify his own vocal chains. Like, that's the whole fucking point was he was making himself a tool that could allow him to get his own sound faster. Of course he uses it. He made it. You know what's funny is the uh, master is actually mastering a record right now as we speak. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. So here's some messages. This is, he must have just opened the file. Damn, this sounds so good already. Whoa, damn, dude. Thank you so much. Everyone is freaking out about how good these sound. You really made these perfect. Let's see. And it says, and then go fuck yourself now. Yeah, I know. It says, <laughs> yeah, it was just like, yeah, honestly, these sound so incredibly good. I'll be recommending you forever. I mean, that's pretty glowing. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. That's a real client, totally. Who I was, of course, overseeing. I didn't change anything. I, so you didn't pay for that email. <laughs> yeah, no. It's like on yeah. an infomercial. <laughs> no, I made sure with all of those clients to oversee things and like take special care in responding to them directly and making sure that they are truly happy because they're you know real clients that hit me up. But I didn't change anything as far as the AI was concerned. I let the AI do its job, and then I sent them the output of the AI basically as a control, like a test to see like. Am I drinking my own Kool-Aid too much here? Or is this thing really good? And turns out other people like my Kool-Aid. That's what matters. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we're super excited. Now we're just like, we're in the stages where, like I said, it's mastering a record as we speak. And we are doing crazy stuff, virtual machine scaling, and also prepping for 
the early onboarding of like, I've got, I think, 350 people already lined up for pre-registered. And so we're going to start filtering those people in very soon. And we are making GUI adjustments and stuff like that to add all the creature comforts to make it like a really pleasant experience. You know, the core ability of it totally in place now. And now it's like making it just like nice and pleasant. Yeah, and there's, I can tell you from developing stuff that lives on the web and having people sign up that there's always going to be things that you just didn't think of. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you just, you can't possibly think of everything. This is actually the reason for why people urge creators to just get a minimum viable product out is because you, you can sit there and try and think of every single thing. There's going to be shit that happens that people don't like or or something you didn't even think was a big deal that people love like and there's no way to know until you get feedback and dude you know like going through a development process and starting to onboard you know artists and clients it's like i treat it the same way that i would treat you know doing a record for someone which is like i know how to master records dude like it's not, i'm not making this for me really i'm making this to empower everybody and give them a great tool so what do i care about well man i care about what they think i care about what they want i want to implement the features that are requested like i want to make sure that everyone has an awesome experience of course that's going to benefit me and my team but also it's going to super benefit them and i think they'll feel like responded to and like a part of the community and site at least at first where we're going to like you know we're a new thing but I mean, obviously, I think it's the best. You ready for the hate? Oh, fuck yeah, I don't care. I already got it. <laughs> Dude, I posted a video with some examples being like, hey, we're taking early access registrants. Here's uh, a video showing before and after. And some people are like, oh my God, I need this. Dude, I got so many messages. That sounds crazy. Dude, can I get in? Can I get in? You know, I was like, yep, yeah, well, put you on the list. We'll see. But then, yeah, I got a guy from France and he's just like, I hate this bullshit. He's like, I'm going to do a terrible French accent right now. <laughs> but like, he's like, I put this into FabFilter Pro Q. And this, by the way, I assume what he sounds like. <laughs> was the accent in the text? Yeah, I could just read. I just That's how I read it. I was just like, he's like, and he's like, I put up a limiter and phase flip. And I'm like, you were lying. Like, it did not phase cancel. It didn't. Trust me, it didn't. He's like, all you did was make it louder. And so I wrote, fucking my fault, probably. I wrote a nice message back. He's like, hey, uh, just so you know, I went and I looked at that particular file, I was like, here are actually some of the adjustments it made. Here's why I think like the AI decided to make those. And here's like blah blah blah. And if you check for this, if you check for that, completely disproving like the entire thing. Like a fool, I engage in something on Facebook. And he hits me back. He was like, I will not be buying into your bullshit, but I will let everybody else make up their mind. And I was like, well, thank you so much, sir, for letting everyone oh, else yeah. use their own brain. Man, how, how altruistic of him. <laughs> wow, what a guy. Yeah, so kind. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Though I will say, at least you responded nicely. I always do. I'm, you, dude. You I will never. I will never. You could say anything, and you will never get me to join the like yell and shit talk on the internet club. Like it just, uh, it's not my speed. You know what else I've learned too is one thing that happens with online education is that there's a stigma attached to it that you're scamming people, and it's because there are a lot of scammers in online education and it didn't start with audio. It started with like internet marketing and it's kind of like an offshoot of the infomercial shit from the eighties and nineties. Like look at this mansion. I will show you how to get rich if you buy this book kind of stuff. So that vibe, which is appropriately disliked, people kind of associate that with any online education. And so 
we've had to fight that because obviously we're not scamming people, but there's always going to be somebody who thinks that. I've noticed that the best way I can approach it is not to be like, it's not a scam, motherfucker, it's real, <laughs> is to be really, really nice to them and yeah, offer of them a free month and be like, why don't you come see for yourself? No catch. Like, you can leave free. Just come hang out, and if you know if you still think it's a scam, fine. They end up being fans usually. Usually, yeah, and that's that's the thing. You treat them with a little bit of care. Like I love that mentality, honestly, man. And I think like it's very easy. I learned this early enough in life. It's very easy to know if someone's full of shit because when they are confronted in any manner about something that they are insecure about, they lash out and they get really defensive. And it's very easy to ascertain whether or not someone really believes in what... You don't have to believe in what they believe in, of course, but if you can at least figure out if they believe in what they believe in and by maybe asking them some questions, even if you come in kind of hot. If you come in hot and the person responds to you in a cool and calculated manner, there's a very high chance that that person is just confused why you're so angry and they're happy to hopefully be like, hey, okay, whoa, you seem pissed about a thing I did. Here's what's going on. Anything else? You know, and... If you were to respond like, what? No, like you said, like, fuck you. Like, then of course, right away, you're like, okay, that guy might be full of shit. <laughs> Doesn't really work out too well that way. So you mentioned a pretty cool effect of the service, Monster. Monster. Being that uh, mix engineers can uh, send their clients a more, uh, quote unquote, radio ready version in the song. So that the client doesn't have to get too caught up in an unfinished mix. Uh, how does the flow of starting the use of your product to sending the client work? Yeah, so that, that'll be um, coming out shortly, phase two, basically. Phase one's just sort of done now. But what's going to happen is, so you are a mixed engineer, let's say, and it becomes a part of your delivery process. So here at the studio, um, even if people are here or whatever, we've got a pretty streamlined process where we send mixes out every night on everything that we worked on. We want to remove the middleman of like, first of all, it's important to know that running your files through this service does make them release ready, period. Right. And it removes the middleman of like, from a mixing engineer's perspective, how many times have you sent something to a client and then they say, okay, sounds cool. Just the snare is kind of loud. And you're like, yeah. So, and you have to explain this. The reason the snare is kind of loud is because <laughs> when this gets mastered, transient bass material is going to duck into the average material. And for that reason, I need to add a little bit of supplemental snare, which trust me, won't be quite as loud at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And it sucks because you have to try to get them to imagine something that you know what it's going to sound like, but they're not in your head. So how are they even going to understand? They're not engineers. So then they're like, okay. And you always feel that little bit of like, I'll take your word for it, but okay. Is it possible to hear one? And then that's why people get into doing like, well, let me put a limiter on it. And then, but that's a horrible idea, right? Because then like, it's just a different illusion of like, this approximates what might sort of happen when you master this. And like, what if, and I really think, we're proving this. What if you could take out the middleman entirely? Like, what if you could, your client delivery system, imagine, like, imagine a, a, a Dropbox, for lack of a better term, that when your clients listen to things, they are done in terms of like, there's no guessing about how loud the snare would be. So they hear what could easily be the final product and all the mix notes are incorporated. So as they click on the wave, like there's a wave display that everyone gets. So you see the old wave, you see the new wave, and then you click anywhere in the timeline as you're listening. You hit a button, you drop a note, and for the mix engineer, those list chronologically. So as a mix engineer, you can do deliver final product every time to your clients. You can 
consolidate all of your mixed notes into one place. Everybody can log into your portal and you can share that with your clients. Everything's bundled into, you know, like let's say you got 10 projects going on at a time. Well, you get to see all 10, but of course, each one of your clients just sees their own project. They can see the old versions. We can make revisions based on like revision history. We can look at the old notes. Everything is very elegantly kept and compartmentalized in a way that makes your workflow way faster. And it's not only a better user experience for the mixing engineer, it's an exceptionally better experience for the client as well, because the client is just like, this sounds awesome. And so like, are we good? And I'm like, well, do you have any more notes? Like, no, we love it. Like, fucking we're good. You know, go for it. When it spits it out, does it spit out multiple different specs? Like, yep, we can do that. iTunes, all that shit. Yep, yep. All of that stuff will be happening. So you'll obviously have like 24 bit, 44 ones. But yeah, like if you need some MP3s made and if you want like, you know, four iTunes and all of that loudness stuff, that's going to all be handled internally. It, dude, it's, it's seriously like wildly efficient and great. It's going to, if the adoption goes well, and I don't see any reason it wouldn't, it should be a really effective tool for everybody to make better stuff faster. One thing with Lander was sometimes it sounded okay on specific genres, like homemade rap or something. Sure, yeah. Sometimes it sounded, and when I say okay, I mean like better than what the dude would have done Maybe that's the only time it would ever not be terrible. But you put anything rock or metal through it, and it was just a disaster. I mean, I think that nothing it ever put out was like pro level. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah, nothing was ever pro level. But sometimes in those more electronic based genres, you would get something that was like more passable on an amateur level. But, anyways, what I'm getting at is how is it going to do the right shit for black metal versus like Immure versus Defeater? Yeah, so we are considering putting in some course controls. Like people have different preferences. So phase one, which is basically done now, sounds just great basically on, on everything. But we understand that people are going to have some preferences. We don't want this to turn into a mixing game, but we have totally entertained and probably will implement some very basic like drop down or you know some elegant gooey more version of if you like things a little bit more dynamic or if you like things you know because we don't expect everyone to have necessarily the exact same taste but we definitely believe in what we're doing we think it sounds awesome i would say if anything like right now well it sounds good on everything man like i posted a video you should check out but they all sound good and in that video there's straight up like rock like very harmonically complex man i should have checked it out i had a weird little bout of gastritis oh i'm sorry to hear that sucked yeah no i'm fine now it was just a weird two days it was right when you posted it i had it ready but like i wanted to die oh that's so good and i wanted to die more than i wanted to check it out i and think then that's I forgot. the right so move <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but really, like... I'll check it out after this. Yeah, cool. Like, you have to know what you're doing. Like, you have to have the experience. Like, that's why you need, like, the music major, computer science minor with the computer science major and the music minor because what do I know how to do? Like, well, I know how to make records and I know I know where harmonic issues are going to occur and I know which ones are going to be more irritating and how they usually pop up and how to program an AI to make these choices and these preferences to look out for exactly that kind of stuff where like my partner who's like an amazing programmer works for, I can't say who, but he works also for this huge company like just crushing it. The NSA? <laughs> yeah, the NSA, exactly. He's already listened to this podcast even though it's not out. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, like so, and he like helps me implement things, you know, more efficiently on the computer science side. So it's a great meeting of the minds. You know, ultimately it's going to be up to the users, but you know, we believe really strongly in it. Of course, like any product, man, like any product, there's just going to be people who don't think it's that sweet. And that's okay. And there's going to be some people also who are already great at mastering and just don't want to use it. Totally. And then there'll be people who are solid at mastering but do want to use it because they're like, it's fucking fast. You know what I mean? And it's and it's great. That would be me. Yeah. <laughs> right? And like, I don't know, it's taxis and Uber, it's horses and cars. You know what I mean? It's like you said, there's a lot of space on the internet and there's a lot of space for new products and new ideas and iterations. Like what, is everybody still on MySpace? No, right? People move on. And they're on Friendster. Yeah, they're on Friendster, bro. <laughs> I met my wife on Friendster. We're such good friends. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, so you know, to answer that question, I feel like using adjectives is a little bit tricky, but it is, in my opinion, and apparently my client's opinions, it sounds fucking awesome. I'm very stoked to check it out. Cool. I feel like it's one of those things where if anyone could pull it off, you could pull it off. No, oh, thanks, man. Also, I think that that dynamic with your partner, I have like a similar dynamic with Finn where he's kind of like a business major with a music minor and I'm like a music major with a business minor and it works really, really well. For doing stuff like this, you need your partner to have very good understanding of music, even if they're not an expert at making it or something. Yeah, no question. And so I went through, I, I burned through 10... You went through the pain of getting someone that doesn't understand music to try to do this with you? Yeah, I, I went through developers... I'm sorry. <laughs> ...who were like, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, Because, you know, when you start looking for someone, you get a lot of references and referrals. It took me a while to find someone who got it, who totally understands what's supposed to happen and maybe does not have like the sonic expertise and experience that I do. But, you know, in our lives, he branched off and he started programming more. And I started and doing music on the side. I started doing full, you know, music full time and programming on the side. And it's just a great combo. So I didn't even know that you did programming on the side, but I've always thought of you as an entrepreneur type and you're always doing something new. So I guess. It doesn't surprise me that you always did that, but I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I um, I dropped out of Berkeley after one day, and then I went and registered for a computer science program. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wish I had dropped out after one day. <laughs> should have. Yeah, I know. Just on the whole entrepreneurial thing, has that ever... I'm sure it has, because you now have a very good attitude about dealing with haters and stuff, but I feel like we come from genres where entrepreneurship is not celebrated, as opposed to, say, like, rap, where right, you're right. it's like a mark of honor if you're an entrepreneur. That's like the top of the mountain are rappers that have like nine businesses and made it work and where their music is just one part of it. But if I look at the metal and rock and punk world, it's kind of looked down upon. However, I agree. the people I know who are good at it, they're the people I look up to and uh, kind of relate with the most. Like for instance, like Periphery or something. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very good call. That's the perfect way to take advantage of being in a band. That people like. Yeah, they do such a good job. I love how lighthearted like their like marketing stuff is. And you know, in my experiences talking with those guys are awesome. I love seeing that. I don't know, man. Like I think like one of the least punk things you could do is try to like hold someone down. Yes. You know what I mean? Like if someone's excited about something and they're on one, just let them, just let them go. Like, first of all, if they're a real go-getter, entrepreneurial, whatever you want to call it, type, you can't hold them down. No, there is no stopping them. There's no stopping them. And they're going to go. And I think 
it's cool to celebrate our friends. It's cool to celebrate. Fucking, like, dude, if we didn't have, like, people who were just go-getters, like, we would have no vaccines. We'd, we would just still live in mud huts. You know, like, if, if you, you know, it's like, why all of a sudden in certain genres or certain classifications is it not okay to be an excited, intelligent individual who's driven to create and make? And, dude, not everything is... And make the world a better place. Totally. It's so weird. I think there's a lot to, like, fear-based thoughts, especially now, especially, like, if you're the type of person Person that's susceptible to like hate on social media or that type of stuff. Like, dude, yeah, you'd probably just sit in your room and be scared to do anything because you'd be like, ah, oh, well, someone's going to shit talk me and then I'm going to be ruined. And then you'll play out this entire situation that may or may not happen, but ultimately leaves you right where you are, which is just sitting around not doing stuff that you might think is awesome. And so, dude, like, say anyone can say whatever they want. About me, that's fine. Like, the people that know me and love me, like, they celebrate my successes and I've had failures, dude. Like you just get back up from the failures. And like you said, the pendulum swung the wrong way. Well, let me take the good stuff there and let's try to swing it on back. Yeah. Is this something that is like your attitude towards this? Is it something that you grew into or have you always been this way about it? Because it seems very healthy. Uh, and I can tell you that I actually, I share your attitude, Awesome. but I didn't always, like I had a hard time with it for a while. I still did what I was going to do anyways. Like I never let anything stop me, but the repercussions of it did affect me a lot. Now they don't. Now- That's good. Yeah, I got past it, but I had to get past it. Like, did you have to, or you just- pre-wired like this. It's in there and you could trace back elements of this for as long as I can remember. But I would say as I've matured and had more experiences and know what it takes to make successful entities now and all the hard work that goes into it. And when you have a couple wins, you know that they're not all going to be wins and you know that people are just going to say stuff, but it's just easier to zoom out and say like, this part of the deal. And I don't know, especially like in the internet, man, like how many times <laughs> has like, Someone had something to say about something, but then you see them and they're like, hey man, what's going on? You know, <laughs> you're just like, right? Yeah. And, and, and you're like, not much, dude. How are you? And I just always go high road with it because I really don't have time for it, don't see any benefit at all in not being stoked for myself, not being stoked for basically anyone who's just like on one and wants to go do something. But I don't just mean, in public, I mean, like in the script that you play in your head. Uh -huh. Have you always been like this, or was it a lot harder to deal with at one point in time, like more of a battle? I would say more of a battle, yes. I'm probably a little, I just kind of am sort of wired this way, and I can trace that back, but I, yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially, dude, if enough things kind of hit wrong, like I had a point in my life, you know, to be completely candid in 2015, where like many, many pieces of my life were like falling apart. And I was just like, holy shit, like, am I bad? Is this on me? <laughs> like, you know, it's hard to not doubt when you look around and you don't see anything too awesome happening in your immediate world. You're like, okay, whoa. But you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to live there? You're going to wallow? It's like, nah, like you just, I think the thing that I have and I'm very lucky to have is like, this place sucks. I don't want to be here. This place sucks. So let's go to not this place. And I don't exactly know where that is, but I do know that this sucks. So let's get up. Let's go. You know, I was actually talking about this with somebody last night. The thing when you're in that place that I think is really important is I don't believe in this woo-woo love yourself shit. <laughs> sure. what, what does that even mean? But the thing that is kind of crucial is to allow yourself time. Because if you know that you're in a place that sucks and you know that there's something better 
and you know you want to do something that makes some sort of an impact and you have an idea for a better life, but you don't quite know what it looks like. It could take years. It like it could literally take years. Probably will. It will. So I find that a lot of people don't give themselves the patience to deal with the dark times. And then they never end up coming out on the other side because they think that, you know, this rough patch should last six months. And it's like, no, it could last five years. Absolutely. It could. Yep. It's, it's interesting you say that. My roughest patch was when a bunch of stuff went wrong at the same time. Totally. Basically, same. like from personal to business and nothing cool was going on. Cool stuff had happened in the past, yep. but it was not happening. <laughs> yep. And it's like, am I a fuck up or something? But the thing is that even though a part of me was kind of mentally stuck there, which fucked up my health for a while, part of me didn't allow myself to live there. And it took years, but uh, here we are. So That's awesome to hear. I relate to that so much. And you used a word that I don't love, but use it in a way that I agree with. And that word is shit. I'm, so, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Yes, I'm a, I'm so, well, I'm going to tweet, I'm gonna tweet about to this right now and you are fucking canceled. But uh, <laughs> uh, the word is should. And you know, if anything should be a way, it already would be that way. And so like- What did I say? You said like, when you were talking about how people who think that this dark period only should last a certain amount of time. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's like... Well, I'm saying that's erroneous thinking. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. No, and I agree with you. I know that. And like the should mentality is really an entitlement mentality. And entitlements are like the death of success. They're the death of happiness. If you feel entitled to something, I think you're crazy because like you will get everything you're owed when you make sure you get it. There's no entitlement there. I know a lot of people don't like him, but I was still listening to a Grant Cardone book the other day and he kept saying this phrase, who's got my money? Who's got my money? <laughs> and I was like, uh, you know what? He's right. That's how I used to feel when I was uh, producing bands and not getting paid, sure. and, like waiting six months to get paid. And I, I felt powerless to do anything about it. And uh, I started to think about, well, I need to create a life for myself where... I know who's got my money and it's me. Yeah, totally. Rather than expecting them to change or feeling entitled for the entire system to yep. change because yep. I don't like how it works. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You can't do that. You have to create your own world. If you don't like the world you're in, you have to imagine one better and then make it happen. And entitlement, you know, a lot of people use that word nowadays to like make fun of young people. And I think that it's an unfortunate way to use that word because there's something a lot deeper there. Like that word should be studied and uh, the way that people approach life and use entitlement really should be looked at and it shouldn't be something that uh, just gets associated with like 60-year-olds yelling at 20-year-olds. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Because eliminating entitlement from your life is kind of one of the musts if you're going to do anything cool. Yep, no question. Because the world doesn't owe you jack shit. Like, the universe is going to do what the universe is going to do. And it will consistently make that clear to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it will consistently let you know, we don't care. And it's like, a, if anyone out there is a Modern Life is War fan, I certainly am. There's that line, it's like, the world isn't out to get you, it just doesn't care. And it's like, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. It means that it's your playground to do with what you will. And people have different, like, if you want to, 
go work somewhere and you're like, I don't really love the job, don't really hate the job. But you know what I really love doing? Drinking beer on my couch. I fucking love my couch and I fucking love beer and I love The Simpsons. And that is what I want to do. Bro, go get it. Seasons three through 10 are amazing. I recommend those the most. <laughs> and like, go, go do that. And that's awesome. Like, and there's nothing that means or you should even feel remotely like, like, pushed or like you're supposed to go start companies and build fucking AIs, you don't have to do any of that. You can totally just make yourself happy. But the, the hardest part is like being confident and honest about what does make you happy and then stopping at nothing to get there. And it could be as easy as I'm completely happy with this job that I don't love, but it gives me all the free time. And some security. And some security. You want to be an entrepreneur? You just kiss all your free time goodbye. As gone now. So you better not value free time because you probably won't succeed if you do in that capacity, but you could succeed in another capacity, which is like, I like chilling and that's cool. Chill. I'm actually kind of envious of that. <laughs> no, I feel the same way, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I've thought about that a long time. I, I think they got a better deal. <laughs> I know. They may not realize it, but I think they got the, the better deal. Well, yeah, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, am I the insecure one? I just have to like keep making stuff. I got to keep doing stuff. You know, they're like, bro, chill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I guess kind of a good point. <laughs> I do think that there's got to be some element of insecurity to it. I know that if I'm not hunting something like or going for something big where the goal seems crazy or something that a couple of years ago wouldn't have even been possible. If I don't constantly have something like that or like I'm not constantly going for that next thing, I do start to get insecure. Me too. But I think also just reality sense, my whole financial security comes from me doing extreme things like that. So the moment I stop, my financial security goes away. I do believe that if I were to stop pushing, this would all crumble very fast. Like it would be a matter of months and it would be done. Maybe a little longer because it's subscription-based, but still point remains though that like without that push, that push is the security. So yeah, I do think there's an insecurity to it and there is some fear to it, but it's not in the way of, I need to feel validated by this stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very realistic way to thinking about that. And, and I definitely identify with and respect that too. You know, something I gain a lot. I know you're the same way. Yeah, I get so much joy out of like my, I, I can look out the window of my studio right now and my kid and my wife just walked by and they're both wearing funny little hats. And it brings me so much joy to have a, a place and the drive to make sure that like, we have a happy life. You know, and a lot of that, that is kind of the real goal, man. When I see like my kid doing well and stuff like that, like it's just like, right. Yes, a mastering AI is cool. And yes, my mentoring program is cool. And like, yes, I've been making records forever. And that's all awesome. It serves a purpose in terms of like, I can't help but get after stuff. But I sometimes wonder, like, I can't help but get after stuff because there's an overall need. Financial well being is the modern day hunting, it's survival. It's like, it's like, how do you provide for your family and your tribe? It's like, well, better fucking go get it. And you better go get it in the way that you know how. Well, I think also if having a happy life is what you want, which I think is a great thing, if you did have financial security, but you were working that job that, you know, that you didn't kind of love and you were doing the couch thing. If that's not you, then I don't think you would have a happy life. I agree. Because you'd get depressed or anxious or resentful of your situation. And then you'd probably be not such a good husband or dad. No question. To be around. And your life, it might not be terrible, 
Like it might not be something you see on a reality TV show or an episode of Cops where <laughs> sure. there's a domestic abuse call. <laughs> sure. But I don't think you would be able to say you had a happy life. Yeah. Again, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think we think the same way on this. And I, I don't mean to put that on anyone like, because maybe, maybe you could, but I'm with you. Man, I feel like a, like an evangelist. I'm just here to feel my life with joy. You know, but I like, <laughs> I, you know, like I really am. Like I really am. I, I want to make cool stuff and I want to be a positive dude and I want to help my community and I want to take care of my family. I'm just like, seems like real basic noble shit that I do in an exceptionally nerdy way. <laughs> well, what I think is key though, and you said this earlier, but it's really, really important is uh, being honest with yourself about what it is you want. And this was tough for me. Like when I played guitar and was in the band and I started to realize that I'm not that into playing guitar anymore, but I've played it for 20 years and have worked really hard at it. And this is what people know me for but I really kind of don't give a fuck anymore. And like, I'm on stage, we're like doing tours that were not even possible at some point. But like, we did like this one tour with like Fear Factory in Europe and there's like 2,000 pre-sales in London and it's just like awesome. And I'm on there thinking of like shopping lists or God, I'm so fucking bored. Like, I just want to go home. You know, like just getting those thoughts and- is conflicting because on the one hand, you worked all this time to get to this point. On the other hand, you're there and you don't want it anymore. Having to actually face that and be honest and come to terms with, this is not who I am, was tough. However, it's the best choice I could have made. And I think regardless of what it is, if it does mean that you just want a job and then a chill home life, if that's who you are, just... Face it and accept it because there's no way that you will have any peace in your head otherwise. You got to be honest with who you are. That's the most important and probably hardest part. That's the first domino, right? If you can't do that, if you cannot identify that, like what are you doing? You can't push dominoes over. There's no succession. There's no possible destination. And I had the exact same experience, you know, like I toured, same type of deal. And um, my mind was wandering. And what I realized about myself is that, and the reason I make new things is that who I am is someone who I'm not the type to get excited about something and not see it through. I fucking see things through, no question. But once I have, and it's reached, it's sort of like end of what I would call its life cycle and stuff, like I can move on and that's okay. I actually adore the idea that I might have a few of these big chunks of my life where I do different things and they take a while man it could be decade decades per chunk you know but i want to go all in like i want to reach my vision i want to stand at the top of whatever that vision was in the way that i envisioned it so i can see where's the next peak you know absolutely the life cycle thing is very very real uh, have you heard of the time sunk fallacy i have not it's the sunk cost fallacy. Individuals commit the sunk cost fallacy when they continue a behavior or endeavor as a result of previously invested resources like time, money, or effort. For example, individuals sometimes order too much food and then overeat just to get their money's worth. But the equivalent here would be you put so much time into your band that uh, you can't leave because what did you do it for, right? I completely disagree with that, but I know a lot of people who have stayed way past expiration date because of that fallacy. I put in so much time. I can't just stop, but you are absolutely right when you say that everything has a life cycle. With that life cycle, there's a death cycle. 
knowing when it's time to bail on a project is key. And also, just because a project is going to someday not exist doesn't mean that you shouldn't go all in. Because like you said, fulfilling the vision is the only way that you're going to see where the next peak is coming from. To me, the analogy is kind of like driving down a road at night with the lights on. You can only see as far as the lights will show you. Yeah, that's a good way to put the that. only way to see further is to keep going. If you stop, you're only going to see as far as you can see at that point in time. Yep, I agree. It could be hard to decide, okay, this is my exit. I got to take this turn. But usually if you're being honest with yourself, you know, if you're on that road, you're in the same car, whatever it is, and you even, it feels like you're making progress, but it's just not as fulfilling. You'll feel antsy in that car. Like you'll know. You'll be like, nah, it's not, it's not doing it. <laughs> Here's one of the ways I knew. When I was first touring, I was excited by how much damage my body would take. Like if I was carrying gear and slipped on ice and like was bleeding everywhere, I would be like, fuck yeah, battle scars. Like I got knocked out on stage once. I thought it was the coolest thing. Sure, sure. When we had our accident in the blizzard, fuck yeah. Like gang beatings at shows, awesome. Like all that stuff was like, I don't know. It's not cool stuff, but- Right, 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 right. Like it just made me more energized. Like there was- I don't know. There was something cool about it all. Even if it was negative stuff, like at the end, that stuff happening was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. This is not worth almost dying over. Oh, totally. I, I know. And it's just funny how things change. I guess it just goes back to like what you said and what I said too. It's like that, like just finding the ability is probably the fucking one of the best skills you can get is figuring out how to be honest with yourself and identifying where you're at and what you want. You can do that much if you can get that far, which it doesn't sound like it's that far, but it really is. It's hard. It's hard. If you can get that far, it's like to not then just go. You finally are like, this is what's up. To not just be like, get your motor going. It's real. I don't, I can't understand that. I honestly think that people who have difficulty getting their motor going have not yet found their thing. Correct. For me, finding the thing is just like straight nitro, man. I'm just like, let's go. Like, I can't not. Two things. First of all, anyone who's having a hard time knowing when to bail, when the right time, they should read a book called The Dip by Seth Godin. It's very simple. It's like 70 pages long. You could read it in one sitting. It helped me tremendously to understand that. And it's a hard thing to understand because you have to ask yourself, just being a pussy here <laughs> and like, you know, like just not willing to put in the work to see it through a hard time or do I really just need to get out? And that's actually a hard thing. It takes a lot of thought. But yeah, I think if like the engine doesn't come on about something you want to do, I, I kind of feel like you're not thinking big enough or maybe just not thinking of the right thing. Anytime that I've like had a goal, but kind of fucked around about it, when I went back and analyzed why, it was because I didn't let myself go all the way with it. So the way I do it, man, is I, I just go nuts with my goals. People would think I'm insane if they heard what they actually are. Like, I won't talk about what they actually are because they will think I'm insane. Sure. They're multiple times bigger than what people think they are. But that's what gets me going because I have this weird need to make a grand impact. Now, I'm not saying that everybody has to have that, but you have to know what it is that you're after. And you're right. If it doesn't get you charged... It ain't the thing. You need to adjust the targeting. Either the aim is wrong or the size of the target is wrong, one or the other. 
but one of those for sure. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Dude, I know I have friends, like I said, to you know, use that other thing. Like I have friends who were charged up to watch watch Gossip Girl again. Hey, good for them. It's a pretty all right show and uh, you have at it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I know. And some of us are just, I don't know what it is. I don't know what, I, you know, I don't know what that difference maker is, but I think everybody does have a target. And that's maybe, a, if you're still listening to this podcast, I think that's a pretty key takeaway of things and what sort of could bring a lot of joy to your life. It's not getting it necessarily. It's all the fucking fun you're going to have going for it. Have you ever had the experience of getting it and being like, cool, for about five minutes? Every literal everything that I've ever gotten, like gotten to. Exactly five minutes, right? Yep. yep. And I'm like, okay. Like I said, you get to the peak so you can see the next. Yeah. Have you ever, this is something that's funny to me. People have always told me to celebrate my wins and I don't get that because like, I don't feel like celebrating once they happen because like you, it's like a vantage point. When you get a win, you see what the next one is. And so the one you're on, it like doesn't matter anymore. It's like, it's over. You did it. So I keep getting told by people, you got to celebrate them. You got to cherish them. It's like all that stuff. It's like, yeah, I know what you mean, but uh, no, I just, what's there to celebrate? Like it's in the past. Dude, I can completely agree on probably <laughs> many, many relatable, like very relatable levels. And it's like, it's not that I'm not proud of it because I am, pr I'm, I'm proud of no, it. But it's not about not being proud. It's it's really, but like, I don't know, how long do I got to celebrate for it? Because I, I can see the next peak I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you ever celebrate your wins? No. And my wife, like last night, because- Do you do it for her? <laughs> yeah. You know, what's funny is I really do. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. And she does it for me and it's so true. And, you know, last night I was- showing her monster. I was showing her, I'm like, look, mm -hmm. babe, fucking like, this didn't exist. Now it exists. Listen. And um, she was like, she said some things I'm going to repeat that I did not say about myself and are very hard for me to say, but I'll just say what she said. She said, I watch you work every day. And sometimes it's really annoying because I just want to go to dinner and you keep saying one more minute. But she was like, sometimes I forget that I'm around like a really prolific like important person in your own community and you should be really proud because you uh, are relentless in your pursuit of success and that's really cool. And I didn't cry, but fuck me, I was close. And I was just like, I was like, man, that's a really nice thing to say and I don't know how to accept that at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, something I've thought about a lot is if you want a partner that's going to be able to go to dinner every night, you probably don't want a partner that's prolific at anything. Yep. That's something that I think people need to accept about their partners. Like, know who you're with. Sounds like she knows who she's with. She does. Yeah, that's a cool thing. And I'm so, so lucky, man. Just so lucky that she can see that. And she's selfless enough to be able be a person like this and surround yourself with people who are selfless enough to be genuinely happy for success regardless of its if it's your own or if it is someone inside of your circle because if you can share and like the joy of watching people around you first of all it means you're not a sociopath that's probably good oh yeah it's just a little yeah and it forms these bonds that just pay fucking dividends when you are genuinely caring for and excited for the successes of people and being there for when you know like you know you probably went through it too like when when everything was falling apart in your life and everything was falling apart in my life like the people that are still around are the people that love me those people who really care about me and mm -hmm. they know me they know they know all about me and they know that I was just fucking having a time and that it wasn't going to be forever. And it was annoying to them. Of course it was, but they were there, you know? It was annoying to you too. It was super <laughs> annoying to me. Yeah. 
<laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I, I'm not getting all kumbaya with it, but it's really true. Well, I mean, it's important because have you ever been with a partner? I don't mean business. I mean, like, romantic partner who is not down. Like, they want the benefits of being with somebody successful, prolific, but they don't want the reality of it. Because that has happened to me a few times, and it fucking sucks. Yeah, I mean, I came home from a tour, and my wife was gone, my dog was gone, all the shit in my house was gone. She was gone. Oh, previous wife? Yeah, previous wife, yeah. Okay. And I got home. I mean, dude, imagine just walking in your house, and it was like the fucking show Lost. Like the most, I got on an airplane. I literally went to Australia. You know what I mean? And then I like, just like the show. <laughs> and like, the difference is I come home, and that was a long relationship too. I was fucking married, you know? Like, it was a long relationship, and it just was gone. It's just gone. The, the end. And that is hard as hell because you just walk into everything that you are surrounded with, the room that you're sleeping in, not that there's any shit in it anymore, but <laughs> the, the room that you sleep in and the driveway you pull up into and, and the sound that the stair makes like when you step on it and all of these things like you don't realize you have such sensory for. And the fact that when I go to the door now, I don't hear the little claws because my dog is gone. You know what I mean? Like all of this stuff reminds you that like, of like the pain of the fact like, well, holy shit, like I had and now I have not. And you just got to have the engine. Like, dude, it's going to suck for a while, but you like, you got to just be a, a goer, a doer. Because like I said earlier in this podcast, this place sucks and I don't want to be here. I don't know what's in any direction necessarily, but I got to start walking because this place sucks. So how do you set your targets? Like, how do you know that, is it like a, light bulb that comes on in your head like say you're in that place that sucks and you start walking and then you walk far enough to start to see like a peak or a potential peak and that's really the way that you do it is you start by fixing little things right and then developing a little momentum and then eventually that higher part of your brain kicks in but what i'm getting at is how do you pick your targets like how do you know what to go for like I said, is it a light bulb that just comes on or is it an analytical thing? And then how do you know that it's big enough to get you going? I think your headlight metaphor is really good here. Like, you know, you start driving, not a lot of gas in the tank, you know, <laughs> and uh, you start moving and you look around and you got to look, you got to want to look. And you have to be able to say, like I said, like, I don't like this, so I can't just be here. So you got to move and then you'll come across, this is a little win, that's a little win. And fucking growing out of a situation like that and success is not linear. You know what I mean? It looks like a stock graph. Like it might be going up in general, but it might be a slow curve and there'll be dips in that curve and those will be discouraging, but they will also suck. So what you'll find, hopefully, is that that dip, while lower than where you were last week, is higher than where you were two months ago. And maybe mm -hmm. only by a slight margin, but it's still higher and that's still progress. And, it's directionally correct. Yeah, directionally correct. And so like, um, and after I get a little bit of momentum, like I don't think when I'm in a place like that's like that low that I'm in a good headspace to be like, all right, like let me just take on this thing that's gonna require a ton of energy and like change the world and stuff. Like, like I'll make movements in that direction, but I will have a light bulb moments once I've built up enough momentum and I'm like, okay, something clicked. When I realized I knew how to make like an AI. You know, because I just went, I was just doing things that led me there. My entire life has sort of led me to being the person who could do this. With I didn't know I was going to. I had no idea ever until I did. But when it hit, I was like, oh yeah, 
I could do that. And then you kind of go like, yeah, that'd be fucking awesome. Like, I'm going to like, yeah, I'm going to do And like, and then I feel the charge. Like, and I'm like, here we go. Yeah. Fucking rocket ship. Yeah, totally. It's interesting, man. When you say the, I didn't know I was going to do this. I didn't know I was going to do this either. I knew I wanted to do something big and I still want to do things that are bigger, but I didn't know I was going to do this. And I think that planning too much is also the devil. Yeah, totally. I think that, like we said, like not really being honest with yourself about who you are is bad, but also over planning, I think it's just a form of procrastination, really. Yeah, that's a good way to put that. It really is. It is, but it's a way that people trick themselves into thinking they're doing something productive, and that's why it's so deceptively evil. Yeah, so true. You think you're doing something, but you're really not. All you're doing is basically pushing back the... Uh, potential of feeling bad over something not working. Man, amen to that. I have seen so many examples of that with friends of mine in their lives. I still see it with some of them. Please don't listen to this podcast. You'll know who you are. Or do listen to this podcast. <laughs> or do, yeah. Or maybe I need to go talk to you. And not that you'd listen anyway. But yeah, I couldn't agree more. I see, I've seen it with studio owners, man, to bring it back to like the studio world. I've seen them put these crazy business plans together. I've seen them get credit cards. I've seen them buy pieces of gear that they think they need to have. You know, like you need to have some gear, but like, bruh, you don't need that rack full of shit. Like you don't have any clients, you know, like, <laughs> so like, and they do the business plan and then it's like, I don't know I guess they feel the dreams it. They think it's like, okay, look, I got all this shit. So like everyone will just know that I'm awesome now and come I'm like, no man, you got to provide value for other people. You need to go out and provide value just in like your spirit. And you need to go out and provide value. And you say, like, yeah, no, come do a song with me. Oh, money's an issue. Well, let's work on that. Okay. Oh, you like the song. Okay. Tell your fucking friends. Like, let me provide value for them. Do you want to do some more? Maybe we could find a more financial amicable situation here. You know what I mean? And like, go out there, proactively provide value for people. And it really does pay you back more. Like, it's crazy. And you develop relationships and like, you never know when those relationships, they'll just come out of nowhere and start lining up occasionally. It's like the more relationship possibilities you create, the more chances you have for this to line up and little like synapse here, like, bzz, bzz, bzz. and like, sure, the vast majority of them may not offer you like these bountiful situations, but like, if you don't start providing value and, and creating these networks, then there's none. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and it takes a long time to build them up. I read this book called Where Good Ideas Come From, which uh, everybody should read because it's like the best book I've read about this in like the past decade. It's incredible. You should read it. Well, you've given me quite the summer reading list already. I will. This is better than anything else I recommended. Okay, cool. I think it'll blow your mind, but there's a chapter. Well, first of all, it talks about networks like you just did. Also talks about this idea called the adjacent possible that uh, basically great ideas all come from two different things that are possibilities combining in a way that was previously unplanned or unthought of. But you have to get to the point where that thing is even possible in the first place. Sure do. And by creating that network, you set the stage for the adjacent possible to even happen, like your music skills plus AI right. coming together. For instance, if you didn't have your computer programming skills, if you didn't have your music skills, if you didn't have the partner that had the music knowledge plus the programming stuff, if Lander hadn't already come out and did what it did, for instance, like all these things come together to kind of set a stage for someone like you to then make master, right? Yeah, no question. And even on much smaller levels, you meet one person, you meet another person, they introduce you to a third person. If you had never met one of them, 
you might not get to that third person who then offers you this massive opportunity or even a little opportunity, which then introduces you to 10 more people. And then one of those 10 introduces you to somebody who then offers you a massive opportunity. No question. Yep. Couldn't agree more. And that's like you said, you just got to have the momentum. I like to live my life like the mediocre Jim Carrey movie, Yes Man, where like you just <laughs> got to say yes to some shit and fucking and follow through and do it. Listen, it may or may not be the thing you thought it was going to be, but I'll tell you what, it will absolutely be something. And something is a lot better than nothing. Yeah. Do you have a problem saying no to things? It depends. Like, kind of, because if I'm excited about it, it's hard for me to not want to do it. But sometimes now I've, I've had to, because I did have a problem saying no to things, I've had to get a little bit more realistic with more effective ways to say yes for time management reasons. Or sometimes, like when it comes to clients and stuff, like sometimes I'll, I'll have to say that I it's just not a project I can take on because... Because you can't. I can't. And so... That's where like building up my business with, again, finding the right people, man, so important. Like my assistant who works here basically every day is just, he's a crusher. He's just so good. And now with our Captain Planet shit, right? Like with our powers combined, like now we can take on clients that I would have had to say no to because now I can come in and I can make sure things are running. He knows how I want things, but I've got the experience, right? Like, so like I come in and he'll defer to me on stuff and I'll be like, okay, this is awesome, but I'll get the tones, I'll do whatever. I'll check in a lot during the process, but like I can go, like I'm doing other shit too. So, and it's also important to be like transparent and upfront with clients who are like, you know, they can't have their expectations not met in the sense like, oh, we thought like we were working just with you exclusively the whole time. It's like, you need to like also be honest with your clients and say like, hey, this, here's how I want to do this just so you know, and I don't want you to worry. Uh, you can always come to me and also like, this is how we make records. And all those records that you like and the reason you emailed me in the first place, they were made in this way. And it's important for you to know that because it's going to be awesome. We wouldn't take on this project if we thought it wouldn't be. So just trust in that, but I want to be upfront with you to manage expectations in terms of like, just in case you were like, who's this fucking guy? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds to me like you have the inclination to try to say yes a lot, but obviously you've gotten smart about when to not say yes. However, you have set up your life in a way that allows you to say yes a lot more often than not when the right circumstances present themselves. Yeah, and you got to understand too. Like I'm like I own two buildings in Worcester, Mass. So I've got like I've got to put things in place there with my property management. So like I got a single point of contact there for like uh, tenants. Yes, I'm a bad landlord or something. I don't know. It's apparently not a very popular term right now. <laughs> I think that I'm providing people a fucking place to live at exceptionally reasonable value. But you know, uh, <laughs> so like you know, I've got like that stuff, and then I've got Monster, and then I've got my mentoring, so I have to take care of my students, and then I've got my clients, and I've got my mixing stuff, and then I've got my assistant, and on top of that, I have the most important thing. I got my kid. I got my family. Right. So, like, if I wasn't such an analytical person, if I didn't put all of these systems in place, first of all, it would have never scaled to this level. And second of all, it would all be falling apart if it even came close. It sounds like it would be utter chaos. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking about, you know, those people that wherever they go, they just bring chaos with them. Yes. Like, somehow there's <laughs> always just chaos happening. Totally. Like always some situation like they're always broke or there's always some like something fucked up happening and uh, the common denominator is always them them it's always them yeah i think that order is not natural but it's part of why it helps you get ahead because it helps you stand out and gives you an advantage over other people but doing this stuff like the extreme delegation and the disciplined analytical thinking and all that, it's not a natural thing for people. It's not the way things normally are. I mean, the universe, 
entropy is the order of things. Yeah, agreed. Things move towards chaos, so we have to constantly fight that chaos, like every single day. Yeah, so it takes energy to maintain the order. It requires a lot of energy because you can only control yourself, and then <laughs> you can sort of put things in place where you can get more consistent responses from outside factors, people, whatever. And that's all. The whole thing has to be managed because you don't get to just decide like, oh, my like intern's not going to quit or like my tenant's not going to leave or whatever, like that a pandemic isn't going to fucking break out. Like you don't get to control any of that. The only thing you can do is sort of like be smart, prepare, understand it's going to take energy, manage what you can the best you can while minimizing your own liabilities to a point that you have contingency plans available to you in the events that you can't predict exactly what they're going to be, but like you can kind of generalize like this might get fucked, that might get fucked, that might get fucked. And if you can sort of like at least a little bit be like, okay, what would I do in case of that? Like that's probably worth figuring out. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a good place to stop the podcast, man. Cool. Me too. It's been awesome talking to you. Likewise, dude. Glad we did this. Always is. And uh, I'm going to go watch that video right now. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Let me know what you think. Yeah. Anyway, so thanks for having me. Go URM. (laughs) Thank you. Cool. I'm sure we'll talk soon. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVYURM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.academy and press the podcast link today.